Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. There's little doubt that the electricity system of the future will look very different from the system that we have today. In the U.S., a growing number of states and the federal government have set 100% clean energy goals for the middle of this century or earlier. The growing demand for clean energy is already evident in the fact that wind and solar power now account for the overwhelming majority of new additions to the nation's power generation fleet. Yet building an electricity grid to accommodate large amounts of renewable energy raises a host of challenges. The most important of these will be to manage the intermittent nature of wind and solar energy to ensure that reliable power is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. On today's podcast, we'll look at the main strategy to managing all that clean energy and at some of the hurdles that need to be overcome to make the strategy a reality. To point, we'll look at the need to dramatically expand the nation's electric grid so that available wind and solar power can be reliably transported to wherever it may be needed. To reach this goal, existing frameworks used to plan and pay for electric transmission may need to be fundamentally reworked. Here to discuss the challenge of building the grid of the future is my guest, Rob Gramlich. Rob is president of Grid Strategies, which provides economic policy analysis for the electric power system. Rob is also director of Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, the Watt Coalition, and he is a former economic advisor to the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. So to get started, uh, Rob, I wonder if you could give us an introduction to your policy work, particularly as it relates to the electric grid and accommodating uh, zero carbon energy. Sure. Well, Grid Strategies uh, provides engineering, economic, and policy analysis for a variety of entities on both the selling side of the market and the buying side of the market and uh, grid operators um, and uh, public agencies, national labs. Uh, And we usually try to look at sort of the 2030 uh, needs. What what is the grid going to look like and what is required to achieve the carbon, uh, you know, economic and reliability objectives of a 2030 grid to, to really do low-cost decarbonization, recognizing that the grid is really central to making it all work. For context, can you tell us about the fundamental changes that are taking place on the grid today uh, in the drive to lower greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, well, the market is changing the grid more than anything else. Um, I mean, natural gas prices uh, really had a, made a big dent in the coal fleet. So that was sort of happening independently. And then renewable energy, wind and solar costs started precipitously falling and storage costs started falling over the last decade, decade and a half to the point where regardless of environmental policies, we were seeing significant change and we are seeing and will see no matter what, significant growth of renewables and storage into the power sector. Uh, And then enter, you know, carbon commitments, which could be federal policy, but state policies are very significant all over the country 
and consumer goals and utility goals are very significant all over the country. So even if we don't pass any significant federal policy, there are all these drivers pushing for greater renewable energy penetration above just what the market would uh, do by itself. So we're getting kind of more renewables. We're getting a decline of, for example, traditional coal fire generation. And also, I, I, I want to you know, bring up the point that it looks like we're going to have more electricity demand generally in the future, right, as we get more electric vehicles and as you know, this push to electrify everything happens, demand for electricity is gen- going to generally grow, right? Exactly. And that's the most recent change is that electrification goals seem to be rising dramatically at the state level and, and certainly now the federal level with the Biden administration and their interest in electrifying transportation and other sectors. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be one of these S-curve type things where, um, uh, you know, once people get used to driving electric cars, uh, I just don't think they're going to go back. But, you know, it takes a while for people to kind of get to that, get to that point. So even with uh, energy efficiency, which has become a bigger, uh, you know, a a bigger drive lately, we're still going to have more, more demand for electricity, bottom line. Yes, I think, yeah, we'll have, I think, significant increases in uh, in electricity demand, which uh, will be new. We haven't seen that for quite a long time, but it'll be back. You know, in in uh, one of your reports on the, the, the changes that need to happen to the electric grid, uh, there was a quote that I just thought was really elegant and got to the kind of the, the essence of the problem. And in that report, you, you state that the existing grid is a poor match for future needs. So we just mentioned how the grid is changing, the resource mix is changing. Um, how, how is it that the, the existing grid today is really not um, set up to accommodate this change in the type of, of resources and clean resources that we expect to see? Yeah, we built the grid, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago to deliver you know, mine mouth coal to population centers. And, um, and then, you know, 20 years ago, we were building uh, tons of gas plants. Um, so the, the grid really wasn't designed for the future resource mix. Um, one thing, I mean, if you were gonna design an optimal grid for a renewable energy future, it would have significant uh, capacity within and across regions because there are sort of connectors and uh, collectors. Uh, I, I think is the easiest way to think of them. The collectors go into the really rich resource areas where you get super high capacity factor wind and solar power, and you have relatively cheap land. You know, those are the that's the sort of the equation that renewable developers are putting together. Um, so you collect that renewable resource up and deliver it up onto the main grid. But then what you also have is these connectors between uh, utilities, between regions, and even within between the, the three interconnections of the country, the eastern, western, and Texas grids, uh, because you end up moving power back and forth. Um, one thing about uh, you know wind power is if you uh, if you have two wind farms 400 miles apart, they're usually operating at completely different times. Uh, and so if you connect them and you connect wind farms all across um, different areas, in aggregate, you get a very steady supply. Um, 
but of course, you can only do that with transmission. And then solar is, is similar, not quite as pronounced as wind, but you have solar in different time zones. You have cloudy areas and sunny areas connected by transmission. And then, of course, the solar and the wind together balance each other out. So uh, the more you diversify across multiple types of renewables and bring geothermal and hydro into the picture, uh, you know, the more you can get a steady supply um, and meet load at all times. You'll, uh, your, your, your smart listeners will, will think to themselves right now, okay, well, what do you do about the three-day periods where you don't have much wind or sun? And that, that is absolutely a planning issue. Uh, I think our current gas fleet largely will be around, and as long as existing nuclear plants stay around, will be available to ramp up at those times. Demand response, more active demand-side flexibility will come into the picture. And then over time, there are all these candidates for what the clean firm resource will be if, if it's hydrogen or, you know, we end up tapping into Canadian hydro more or um, there's there's a number of other uh, candidates. Um, but uh, to, to significantly decarbonize over this decade, we can still have some fossil plants around that are just operating at low capacity factors, but having them around for that capacity is, is part of the picture. You know, let, let's take a step back for a moment. Uh, you mentioned wind farms being, for example, uh, sited 400 miles from each other. And this distance is a good thing, right? Having wind turbines in diverse areas helps to ensure that wind will always be available in some areas so that power can be produced. Uh, but these new wind farms will need to be interconnected and connected to customers through long-distance power lines that don't yet exist. And part of the reason the lines don't exist is because a wind farm may be sited, for example, on a mountain ridge or on a wide open plain where there hasn't been generation in the past, where existing coal nuclear plants are sited on bodies of water, and that water is needed to cool the plants. So, you know, really what we need here is new transmission and many miles of it to accommodate yeah, that's right. the new clean energy resources. Yeah, that's right. One example is the... Um Texas competitive renewable energy zones. There, there were tremendous wind resources in West Texas and the, up in the Panhandle. Um, and uh, so back in 2006 or seven, the state um, passed a law uh, requiring that the, the commission work on, on a proactive plan to build out transmission to those areas. Uh, and that's that's been a model for many other areas uh, to, you know, proactively plan to those resource areas, which in the transmission planning world is a, is a completely different, uh, I mean, we just haven't done that for decades ever since we built lines out to mine mouth coal plants. Um, so instead of just sitting back and reactively letting generators come to the system and request service. This was a proactive plan to the resource area. And it's a vast you know, resource area. I mean, 15, 18 gigawatts, something like that of, of wind was, was connected. And you know, as soon as the lines were operational, the wind generators were flocking to it and, uh, and the whole thing got fully subscribed um, very quickly before anybody thought. Uh, and so the, you know, the only, the only uh, regrets they have in hindsight is they should have done the higher voltage version of that. Um, same dynamic happened in the upper Midwest, delivering uh, a, a lot of renewable energy out of the upper Great Plains states and towards Chicago and points east. 
So, so the way the grid is, is built right now, it's not built with these long distances in mind. That's right, mm -hmm. right. So those are kind of those collector type lines. And so that, you know, the grid needs to be uh, updated to add those. Um, and then the other type of thing we need is sort of, you th think about the Eastern and the Western interconnection, mm -hmm. um, roughly the Eastern and Western half of the country, there's there's all this opportunity to send power back and forth. In fact, the National Renewable Energy Lab's SEAMS study uh, looked at sort of what day-to-day -day operation would look like. And it turned out instead of the roughly one or two gigawatt um, capacity that we have uh, to go back and forth today, that the, the model said really the, the optimal size would be sending uh, 30 or 40 gigawatts uh, 30 or 40 times the current capacity back and forth on a daily basis. So, you know, you might have, uh, you know, southwestern solar power during the day being sent east and uh, wind power uh, at all the other times from the east to the west back and forth, which is the same way. It's interesting. The Pacific DC inner tie is one of our longest lines. It may be the longest single line in the in the country. It's 50 years old. It had its 50th birthday last year. President Kennedy got it going. Mm. Uh, and it was designed to bring Northwestern Hydro to Southern California and the growing demand and load down there. But you look at the way it's operated today, it still uh, brings Northwest Hydro and wind down south, but it does that at night. And during the day, they've got surplus solar in Cal Southern California that they're sending up north. So that line is fully you know, uh, used up to its capacity in one direction during the day and the other direction at, at night. And that's that's the way to think about a renewable energy grid. That's that's how we're going to see the grid used. And we need those long interregional high capacity lines in order to enable that. So I also understand this isn't simply about uh, interconnecting all these resources, but it's also about making the grid more resilient in the future. So if we have a an enhanced web uh, of particularly of, of long distance power lines that can bring energy from faraway places to faraway uh, demand centers, that also provides additional advantages to the grid. Uh, can you tell, tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I like how you put that because it is a completely independent consideration. And, you know, I, I'm in the Washington area and I do a lot of work with policymakers. Uh, and obviously some of them love to talk about climate. Others don't really want to talk about climate at all. Uh, but everybody loves to talk about resilience because everybody saw what happened in Texas uh, when you didn't have much interregional capacity. Uh, and uh, the, the little known fact of these severe weather events that have happened over the last 10 or 15 years is that what saves everybody's bacon, what keeps the lights on, is large interregional movements of, of power. So when the polar vortex was centered on the, the mid-Atlantic, you had almost 10 gigawatts flowing in from the Midwest. There's always available power. The weather patterns are big, but they're not as big as the grid, right? So the mid-Atlantic can have a polar vortex, but the Midwest has power. And then during this winter storm, Uri in February, it was the opposite direction. The, the event was centered in the central region, and we had all this available power in the mid-Atlantic that ended up shooting west. Um, and so you need those interregional capacity uh, lines to do that. Uh, it's interesting. I mentioned a few minutes ago the 
the upper Midwest lines that were built to deliver um, renewables from the upper Great Plains to Chicago and points east. Well, those exact same lines were used to keep the lights on in the upper Great Plains because they had this frigid cold and, you know, generators failing. Uh, and so they were importing power from uh, the mid-Atlantic uh, all the way across on those same lines to, to keep the lights on. So that's a that's a, an important factor for uh, future transmission planning is that you have to take into account these potential scenarios. It's hard to put a real probability on them uh, or say exactly what's going to happen because obviously nobody knows. But uh, there are going to be uh, you know, severe weather events. I mean, we've always had them and they are increasing in severity and frequency. Uh, and so if we plan for those potential situations, we're, we're, we're going to find that there's a very high value of interregional transmission. Uh, and so we need to incorporate that when we're doing our sort of benefit cost analysis of, of how much we need. So, so again, so we're going to need this, this much more robust, more complex, longer distance grid to balance wind and solar uh, in all places so that there's always clean energy available or mostly available when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining in, in certain areas. We're also going to need it to make sure that there's always other sources of energy should there be local failures to the grid. Uh, even things like cyber attacks are obviously a, a growing concern. But it seems to me, from, from my understanding, the problem is how do we get that grid? Because we very much do not have that today. You mentioned that there's no real connection between the western half of the United States electric grid and the eastern half, right? So you can't get uh, California solar to the Midwest, for example. Um, the current planning structure doesn't really allow for that kind of national uh, electric system to be envisioned, planned, and implemented. How is transmission planned today, and why is the current framework really not ideal to get us where we need to go? Yeah, you have to consider how we got here. And the way we got here was a whole bunch of uh, small utilities serving local load with local generation. So they were sort of, think of them as vertical silos in all of the communities around the country, the cities and communities, each one having a either a public power or an investor-owned utility serving it. And only over time did they start to increase their connections, their sort of horizontal connections between each other through transmission lines. And they did that for um, the same reason that we're talking about, which is if something happens to the generation in one place, you, you rely on your neighbors uh, to back you up. And so neighbors are all backing up neighbors, but that was never the primary uh, you know, source of power. Those were sort of the afterthought. And then as uh, electricity restructuring came and attempts to uh, rely on competition and generation in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, we started to develop these regional transmission organizations um, that were put in place in two-thirds of the country, California, Texas, uh, parts of the central and Midwest and then the Northeast, but not the West or Southeast. And these regional transmission organizations 
started to do regional planning, but e even in that case, it was relatively weak because the only way they can plan any transmission is if they can get everybody to voluntarily agree on who pays how much. And that's, of course, tremendously difficult. Nobody wants to pay for public goods like transmission. Everybody wants somebody else to pay for it. So um, we you know, have this relatively weak system with, I think, what are very weak planning criteria and methods of these regional transmission organizations. Uh, and then in some areas, the West and the, and the Southeast, we don't even have those. We don't even have the RTOs, regional transmission organizations. Um, so they, they have some planning authorities uh, that are really just places where utilities compare notes, but they don't actually do any, any planning. So that's sort of where we are and, and why we're here. Now, going forward, of course, there are ways to, um, to change that. FERC has quite a lot of authority, and we can talk about what they can do with it. Well, well so, so FERC does uh, regulate the, the electricity markets, the RTOs and the ISOs, and, and, and there are, as you said, mechanisms within the footprints of those uh, those markets to actually incentivize uh, uh, new transmission. But again, there's nothing on a national scale that can really look at the whole map of the United States and say, hey, it would be advantageous overall to build lines here, here, and here. When those lines go beyond the borders of these individual markets, things get a lot more complicated, right? That's right. No, we're, we're a long way from having national planning. We, we don't even have uh, functional inter-regional planning. Uh, we don't re really have functional regional planning in most regions. Um, and in, uh, you know, outside of the RTO ISO areas in the Southeast and West, we, we don't have any kind of planning outside of just what individual utilities do. You mentioned also uh, briefly that uh, who's going to pay for this stuff, right? So it's not just about planning it, but it's like who, who's going to pay for it if we do build it? Right. So there are some discussions within the, the infrastructure bill in, uh, in Congress and, and uh, in Washington right now about that. But that's, um, that's a brand new idea, you know, for the whole history of the, the industry really, um, you know, transmission costs were recovered in rates uh, and uh, both sort of distribution and, and transmission were largely covered in local rates. And then increasingly over time, there's more of a regional uh, cost recovery. But the, the, the still the basic problem is utilities have ways to recover costs on their local systems, but there's not really a functioning way to recover the costs of the interstate highway type lines. Mm -hmm. So that's a point we've been making in these uh, Washington policy conversations of, uh, look, transmission is as close to the classic pure definition of infrastructure as anything is. Uh, in fact, you know, it's arguably more necessary to modern life, both home life and business life, uh, than any other form of infrastructure. Um, because be, partly because every other form of infrastructure relies on electricity. Uh, and so it's essential. And the only reason it hasn't ever been really funded in any federal infrastructure uh, legislation is just because we had this kind of lo local rate recovery mechanism. Well, uh, again, we don't have a regional interstate highway 
rate recovery mechanism. We certainly don't have a national planning uh, entity or a national planning cost recovery mechanism. So there's a role for Congress to to help here and at least push us in that direction and and help um, you know pick up the tab for some of those costs. You know, in a few minutes, I want to kind of get more into that issue of of what regulatory uh, solutions there may be for this. But I, I wanted to bring up another hurdle that that you've mentioned a lot in your research. It, it's called the triple hurdle, is what you've called it. So not only is there the question of who's going to pay for these long distance power lines, how's the cost going to be allocated. But there are also a lot of jurisdictional authorities that you have to deal with when you're going across many states, and they all have to agree that this power line is going to be a good thing and that they're going to let it pass through their territory. How has that tended to impact uh, any efforts uh, to you know, put up more interregional uh, lines? Yeah, uh, there is a, um, uh, a real clunky process for this interregional planning effort right now. And the triple hurdle problem refers to this issue where you, you got to go through, uh, the, you know, the process with, um, you know, planner for region A, then you got to go through the process for the planner for region B, and then you have to go through a third hurdle, a third process for a jointly determined new type of process, each of which has their own criteria. And so you could have a great line, you know, that might jump over two of those hurdles, but, but not the third. So it's, it's really clunky. A couple of the regions are now working together. Um, MISO and SPP are the two in the central region um, that are now sort of working together. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other regions that are not doing anything. And um, there's quite a distance to go to, to sort of sort it out and, and achieve a, a rational interregional planning process. There are a lot of people talking now about really maybe we need a national planning process for the sort of the the macro grid grid overlay that would really kind of sit above all of these more regional lines. Um, and of course, you know, if you're talking about lines that cross the east, west, and Texas interconnections, then really you're looking at na national scale. So there, you know, there could be some type of hierarchical planning approach that um, kicks certain issues up to, to them and then, you know, regional and uh, two regions working together on interregional can, um, can pursue their, their work. You know, there's, there's some um, a statistic that I saw, uh, and it was comparing the amount of high-voltage long-distance power lines that are being built in North America, United States, in Europe, and in China. And China obviously has a central planning structure. And this uh, statistic that I saw said 80 times more high-voltage long-distance power lines have built, been built in China, and it's specifically to, to enable uh, China's uh, energy system uh, you know, efficiency. It, it sounds like we need or optimally some sort of system where there is a, a strong authority from above to say it's in the national interest uh, for a variety of reasons to have lines go from this place to this place around the country. You, you mentioned some type of mechanism. Of, what would that possibly look like? What agency might, um, might be able to, 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 to direct this and is there an agency that you know really has the authority to 
to undertake that. Yeah, well, that's just statistic. It's actually from our report, uh, American oh, sorry. Clean okay, Energy from Grid. No, no problem. Uh, uh, cleanenergygrid.org has a, a number of reports we put out over the last year, and one of them was called Macrogrids in the Mainstream, looking at uh, various uh, countries and continents and their macrogrid planning work. And, uh, yeah, China's um, kicking everybody's butt right now. So, um, you know, there's... Uh, uh, kind of a, a competitiveness issue with that too, which is that the, the technology uh, used to be dominated by, dominated by American companies and some European companies. Uh, and, you know, now it's really the Chinese who are kind of leading on that, the 1000 kV type HVDC lines. Um, but, you know, if we start doing it here or, you know, in, in Europe and South America, North America, we can... Um, regain a, uh, uh, a foothold in that industry. Uh, at any rate, your question's how to do, do that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, the principal entities uh, nationally are the Department of Energy and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission here. FERC is an independent agency made up of Republicans and Democrats. Um, and they're more of a quasi-judicial type entity. They set the rules of the road and they, um, you know, resolve disputes and they set rates like a typical regulator. DOE could do probably more of the planning. You know, they have uh, dollars and funding. They can engage states. They can use the national labs. So you could see a, a sort of a partnership of DOE and FERC uh, Doing uh, doing that, DOE may be funding more of the technical work and the engagement of uh, stakeholders, including states, and FERC being more the uh, the implementer of such a plan or putting you know uh, requiring regions to um, adopt the plans and put them into the tariffs. So that's uh, you know that's one potential outcome. Uh, I think a lot of folks are watching to see what the administration does with this grid deployment authority. It was a concept mentioned in the American Jobs Plan, the Biden-Harris uh, infrastructure plan. Um, there have not been many public details uh, about that, but Secretary Granholm is all about deployment, 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 and, you know, wants to use uh, her tools to, um, to advance transmission. Uh, I've never seen a Secretary of Energy have so much passion about transmission, <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, and you know, they, that uh, that entity, whatever it uh, turns into, could be a, a central place uh, for that. There's another great quote uh, that I pulled from your report entitled "Planning for the Future," and this quote is from the MIT economist Paul Josko. Uh, and the quote addresses the question of whether we should regulate our way to the grid of the future or rely on markets and market forces to get us there. Uh, and Josco said, and, and this was in the early days of electricity market restructuring, he said, quote, the assumption that at the present time the market will provide needed transmission network enhancements is the road to ruin, end quote. Tell us about the role of markets uh, in driving the grid transition. Right. This is an important point, and uh, it's confusing, I, I think, um, to a lot of people because we did, as an as an electric industry, move to competitive markets, at least in the wholesale generation sector, um, 
And there was sort of an assumption by a lot of people that we therefore shouldn't be planning, quote unquote, planning, you know, doing a sort of regulatory requirements related to transmission. We should just let the market decide. And if the market decided, you know, we needed generation over here versus over there, then the generator should go there and the grid should just remain the grid and sort of be a sort of a static thing. Well, I mean, in the in the policy analysis, and that's why I included the quote from Paul Joshgau, who was probably the you know the leading industrial organization economist working in in uh, electricity. Um, you know, if you look back at the, the the academic literature that formed the basis for electricity restructuring, nobody ever claimed that the transmission sector was uh, was competitive or you know no longer had natural monopoly characteristics. Um, and nobody ever claimed that the um, you know pricing of transmission through locational pricing uh, would lead the market to produce the optimal amount of transmission. I mean, you can be, it's certainly, everybody agrees you should be allowed to build merchant transmission, like any private developer should be able to build a transmission line and connect to the grid. Uh, and get the value and you know sell capacity rights. That's that's fine for private third-party entities to to do that. But nobody ever said that 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 by itself leads to the optimal amount of transmission. It is quite clear that the optimal amount of transmission is is more than what the market would do on its own like that with just independent private parties doing what they have an interest to do. Uh, and so we really need to proactively plan the transmission system. Uh, to provide the reliability we need, to provide a, an effective platform for competition, uh, and to connect the, the optimal resource mix. So there is this important planning function that, you know, some people think it's a, a, a little bit uh, inconsistent with uh, competitive markets, but it, it's the, the distinction here is, like, transmission is still a, a regulated industry that requires planning, generation is structurally competitive and you know we don't need to plan generation more anymore and you know utilities don't necessarily need to own the generation anymore we can have competitive independent third parties uh, building the the generation so that's the that's the distinction basically different regulatory constructs for the generation and the transmission sectors you know, I want to bring up one more issue, and, and what we're talking about is, you know, it's pretty complex, um, but I'm going to stir the pot just one more time here, okay? Um, we talked about cost allocation. Who's going to pay for these lines that may crisscross the country delivering clean energy to market? There's one other cost allocation issue uh, that's really, really important that I think we, we should probably reference here, and that is when you get a new power plant that wants to connect to the grid. It goes through what's called the interconnection queue. Um, the way the markets or the way the regulations work right now is that power plant or that proposed plant, wind farm, solar farm, whatever it may be, has to pay for the interconnection to the grid, which can really substantially increase the cost of that new plant because we're not just talking about the turbines themselves, but this long potential power line, that hurts the economics and can really slow the development of a new generation of clean resources. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular cost allocation problem and 
how it's slowing things up and how it could possibly be resolved? Sure, it's a big problem. The interconnection queues, the line of all the generators trying to get connected to the bulk transmission system is very long. It's, uh, I think, 680 gigawatts of clean energy generation are in those queues. The average time to complete the queue process is three and a half years. So it's really kind of a, a mess. And it is largely the result of that uh, cost allocation problem you mentioned, as well as the lack of proactive planning to build the transmission ahead of time. Um, but that, the cost allocation issue is that um, the interconnecting generator, uh, I mean, everybody agrees that you, you pay for your own driveway. If you're like a homeowner, you pay for your own driveway. But the interconnecting generators are also being asked to pay um, for the you know the road system and the you know the lane expansion of the highway that that everybody else is going to use. So, it, you know you might interconnect ten generators for a low cost, and then the eleventh generator suddenly there's not enough capacity left for that one. So that one gets sent this bill that could be you know fifty hundred million dollars for a wind or solar project. Um, which, you know, might be up to the cost of the, the, the project itself. Um, whereas, you know, all the, the, the first 10 had a, you know, a five to $10 million charge. So, you know, suddenly costs go up 10 X and it's just the unlucky generator based on the, the, you know, the order in, in which it was processed. Um, and then what happens is, uh, that generator says, well, then forget about it. I can't, uh, make my economics work, so I'm going to drop out of the queue. Well, then that one drops out of the queue. Then the grid operator has to restudy all the other projects remaining in the queue, and somebody, some other lucky, uh, unlucky customer has to foot that bill. Uh, and then you get this sort of do loop, this endless cycle of churn, um, leading overall to an incentive for these generators to put in multiple requests in multiple places, hoping they get lucky. Um, at one of them. So, I mean, the grid operators don't like that the generators do that, but the generators are, are saying, well, what else am I supposed to do? It's the only way to get through this process. It's a dysfunctional process. So uh, our my point, and we put out a report also on cleanenergygrid.org uh, called Disconnected, my colleague Jay Casper and I, uh, and, um, and Michael Goggin, um, on uh, this sort of... Um, this dysfunctional process and how, you know, really this process was designed for gas generators. And I was there at FERC um, in the chairman's office when we were, you know, designing the rules and, you know, I, everything in the queue at that point was gas generators and everybody was designing rules for for gas generators and arguably the, the rules worked okay for gas generators. Well, well now we've got a completely different fleet that is, you know, location constrained as we've discussed. Um, you know, each one is, uh, you know, smaller than big central power plants. Um, sometimes they're big sometimes, but they could be, you know, a bunch of small distributed across an area. So at any rate, um, it the process doesn't really work. So we need to get rid of that full allocation of shared network upgrade costs to individual generators. That's the, it's called participant funding. And there's actually uh, about to be a, a bill introduced in Congress to do that. Um, to, to do away with uh, full participant yeah, to, funding? To, yeah, to just ban the 100% participant funding option. Take that one off the table. Um, it would allow for, you know, other shares of costs to, 
to be allocated and FERC is in charge of this and we'll still have to decide. And I think the current FERC is getting ready to uh, introduce some, um, some actions uh, related to this. Um, uh, and, you know, it's not that generators have to pay zero for the shared network, network but right now it's, it's completely disproportionate and it leads to this, uh, this dysfunctional system. So that's, that really needs to change. And, and I, think, uh, I think both Congress and FERC are, are uh, uh, interested in changing it. But it's also the conversation about where do the benefits go, right? So traditionally, it's like, okay, you built the wind farm, you're going to make you're going to make money off of it. So you you build the driveway and the and the the, the reinforcing of the existing system. But I, I think as we're looking to the future, we're seeing that these benefits are, you know, if we're talking about climate benefits, other benefits that come with a clean energy system. These benefits accrue to everyone, so the cost shouldn't just fall to a limited parties. Maybe everybody, whatever anybody is, everybody is is defined as everybody should somehow be paying for these because it's a global, in quotes, benefit. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And that's what our few successful examples, uh, you know, proved and, and did and, and they worked. You know, the Texas Competitive Renewable Energy Zone spread the cost to all the load in the area. The MISO multi-value projects in the upper Midwest um, we you know, kind of went through a process with the states to agree on who pays how much, which load zone pays how much, uh, and uh, you know they it's basically the costs were allocated to you know some group of of load. The law of the land in in uh, FERC world, FERC jurisdictional world, which is the continental U.S. outside of Texas, is that the costs have to be allocated according to the the uh, beneficiary pays, but it can be roughly commensurate with that, you know, to measure every electron. Um, and so that's, that framework can work, but if, you know, you have to, to, to make it work, you have to recognize that a lot of people benefit across a lot of areas and it's, you know, load across the whole region benefits from all the reliability you get. Uh, and, um, you know, all of the various states that have public policy goals and all the consumers that have clean energy goals, everybody is trying to get that. So the cost shouldn't be stuck on the next generator in the queue. The cost should be shared by all of these users who uh, will, you know, benefit from the transmission over time. Talking about uh, expanding transmission generally, uh, there are a number of options or a combination of options to reduce the carbon footprint of our electricity system. One, obviously, is the move to renewable energy, which will require a more robust grid. Uh, there are other options as well. There's fossil resources with carbon capture and storage and other possible examples. How do the economics of an expanded grid compare to these other options on a benefit-cost basis? Is the expanded grid the cheapest option or a more expensive option going forward? Well, clearly wind and solar are very cheap now and, and storage. Uh, and transmission seems expensive, but it's really not when you look at the total delivered cost of, of what you're getting and you look at the you know, 50, 60, 70 year life of these, these lines and you look at the economies of scale. So you do it high voltage, then the cost per delivered megawatt is, is uh, much lower. So um, it, it's really hard to beat the cost of the wind solar storage transmission portfolio. Um, now, you know, carbon capture should be pursued like hydrogen and lot, like lots of other uh, options and you know nobody knows what the cost will be in you know small modular nuclear nuclear reactors um, you know all of these technologies that are you know not quite uh, 
you know, commercially ready yet, not quite, you know, cost competitive. Uh, well, very much not cost competitive yet. So, you know, R&D and pilot projects can help bring that, um, those costs down and hopefully, hopefully they will. But, um, you know, uh, carbon capture is also a location constrained resource. Um, you know, if you, you know, you can't, you can't put the carbon just anywhere. So, um, uh, you know, transmission will be uh, likely useful for, a, 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 for that scenario too. Um, and, um, you know, under, under just about any resource scenario, transmission is a, a, a great uh, risk management option. I mean, every generating resource has its issue. I mean, when there are droughts, then nuclear plants don't have their cooling water and, you know, any, you know, there are, and coal piles freeze. So, uh, you know, we're never going to have a hundred percent, um, you know, uh, generation operating 100% of the time. So we're, we're always going to need to move power around between resources and between regions. And, um, you know, again, it looks like uh, the optimal solution is a, a whole lot of wind and solar power over the next decade. Um, and we're definitely going to need a lot of transmission for that. Let me ask you a final question here, if I may. So today is June the 18th and the, uh, and, you know, the the, the debate over uh, the Biden infrastructure package is raging right now in Washington. How important is Biden's infrastructure plan going to be to the funding uh, and, you know, the, the regulatory changes uh, that will be required to develop the grid of the future? How important is the package itself? I think it is very important. Uh, again, the president puts transmission uh, into uh, the category of infrastructure. Secretary Buttigieg from Transportation does the same and is looking at, um, you know, transmission corridors along highway and rail. Uh, Secretary Granholm, as I said before, is like the biggest champion for transmission we've ever had in that office. So that, you know, that's that's where the leadership is that they drive the policy agenda more than anybody else uh, in Washington, and their direction is clear. Um, uh, there are a variety of specific proposals. One is a tax credit for transmission that the administration supported and Senate Finance uh, included. Um, uh, it would apply to the large-scale regional and interregional lines. There's also potential for funding. Um, you know, direct funding of um, of the grid or for planning for the grid, or we haven't talked, um, I don't think yet about grid enhancing technologies. Uh, we can we can get to that, but you know, you could imagine funding for the uh, bulk power system technologies that can deliver a lot more power over the existing wires. And of course, that's uh, those are cheap and relatively quick, a lot easier than going through the sometimes 10-year process for new transmission lines. So, you know, that's another area with some sort of stimulus and funding um, that could come in. There are a couple other policy ideas to deal with sort of the chicken and egg problem with transmission where, you know, the, which, you know, do you plan the transmission first or the generation first? And there are ways um, to sort of have, uh, you know, upfront funding that uh, gets paid back over time, sort of a loan program. Um explicitly for that type of situation. So that, that's another opportunity that you could, you could uh, imagine getting into a, uh, an infrastructure bill. 
Rob, I'd said that I have one more question, but in fact, I've got one more. Um, a moment ago, you mentioned grid-enhancing technologies as an important enabler of a cleaner grid. What are grid-enhancing technologies? Sure. Well, uh, so there are a set of technologies that uh, are commercially available now. They're being used in other countries, and they what they do is deliver more over existing wires. Um, I work on three of those technologies a lot, uh, and they are dynamic line ratings, power flow control, and topology optimization. That's a lot of words to, to define, um, but uh, essentially you can kind of think of them as um, you know, monitoring and control systems for the, the high voltage grid. Uh, some of them are sort of like the, the Waze uh, GPS app for, for uh, navigating your car around traffic. Um, because we, we do get, uh, you know, congestion on the grid, just like we get congestion in, uh, on, on roads. And we actually can sort of push and pull electrons around those, uh, those congested points and we can free up capacity by operating the system more efficiently. So I, I think it's important in any transmission conversation to include that because, uh, you know, look, there's a lot of costs and there's a lot of, um, you know, sometimes, you know, landowner and community issues with building transmission. So we need to be able to say we've done everything we can to uh, use the existing wires as efficiently as possible. So those are the grid enhancing technologies that I, I work on. Others, I think FERC might have included storage as a transmission asset in, um, in that list. FERC sort of coined the term grid enhancing technologies. Um, in the context of incentives, which is actually pretty exciting. FERC has a special proceeding on incentives for uh, these technologies with a conference coming up in September. So um, uh, I'm pretty excited about those. I, I work on that uh, issue through the, the Watt Coalition, watt-transmission.org, and there are a lot of resources there if folks are interested. Rob, thanks for talking. Great, Andy. Thanks a lot. Today's guest has been Rob Gramlich, president of Grid Strategies. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also like other episodes, all of which are available on the Climate Center's website, Apple Podcasts, and other apps. We have a recent episode on the efforts of coal communities to stake out their post-coal future. There's our podcast on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's drive to be more accountable to environmental concerns. And we also have a recent episode on the potential and risks of nature-based climate solutions. You can get updates on all the latest insights from the Climate Center by subscribing to our monthly newsletter on our homepage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.